Chapter 3. Boilerplate. Contract tip. What boilerplate to include in short contracts? If you ask lawyers what boilerplate provisions to include in short, low-risk contracts, many would respond with, all of them. It makes sense, as these provisions provide the parties with precise approaches to critical legal issues. Plus, it's much easier to be over-inclusive in the boilerplate section than to scale it down. But do you really need multiple pages of exhaustive boilerplate in these short contracts? Usually, no. We should always consider the risks we face by excluding some boilerplate. But we also should avoid over-lawyering and doing wholesale provision dumps into contracts when it isn't appropriate. Here's how I approach this decision about what boilerplate to include. Critical provisions. I never sacrifice the limit of liability, governing law, and entire agreement provisions. These are on my must-have list. Indemnity. I include it in any deal of significance, but may remove it in low-risk deals with individuals and small companies, especially if my client has deep pockets. We can always sue them after the fact for our damages. Third-party beneficiary, no oral modification, no waiver, severability, further assurances, and independent contractors. If the contract is short, I may lose these. The facts and law may make these provisions moot anyway. Assignment, choice of venue, notice, counterparts, and force majeure. These concepts are already covered by common law, so we can rely on default rules if needed. Contract tip, audit provisions. Audit provisions permit one party to review and inspect information about the other party. Most audit provisions include these seven concepts listed below. How you draft each of them depends on whether you are more likely to be the auditor or the auditee. One, what is the scope? You can narrow the scope to just review payment calculations or broaden it to review anything and talk to anyone related to the party's relationship. Two, who can perform? Some contracts say that only the other party can conduct audits. Others prohibit the other party from conducting the audits and require an independent auditor under an NDA with the auditee. Three, how often? You can be silent, specify as often as the auditor wants, or limit it to once or twice a year. Four, when? Some contracts have no timing restrictions, while others say only during regular business hours. Five, how much notice? You can allow them without notice, such as a surprise audit, or only with 30 days notice. Six, what are the consequences? You may require the auditee to pay any underpayment plus audit costs and have more frequent audits. Seven, does the audit right survive? You can draft it so the audit right ends when the term does, or it can survive for years or even indefinitely. 
I typically want the audit right to last as long as any regulatory requirements applicable to the contract or other ongoing obligations. Contract tip, cumulative remedies provisions. Cumulative remedies provisions provide that all applicable remedies are available for any breach of the agreement. That does not mean you get to recover multiple times for the same breach. It just means that you have a choice to pursue more than one remedy as part of your claim. Here are three core things to know about cumulative remedies provisions. One, cumulative remedies are available without this language. The default presumption in the U.S. is that all remedies are available to the parties unless the contract says otherwise. While you need not include it, I don't worry about it and leave it alone in my contract reviews if it's there. Two, be precise if you want any specific remedy to be exclusive. Identifying a remedy for a breach does not make it exclusive. The best practice is to say it explicitly, such as with the words, the sole and exclusive remedy. Three, if you have a cumulative remedy provision, don't mess it up. You can create a problem by including an exclusive remedy and a cumulative remedies provision. Having both results in an internal conflict. To avoid this, ensure your cumulative remedies provision says something like, except for the sole and exclusive remedies identified in section X of this agreement. Contract tip, entire agreement provisions. An entire agreement provision says the agreement includes everything to which the parties have agreed. It means that the parties have no assumptions, guesses, winks, super secret promises, or side deals. These provisions are not difficult to draft. There are a lot of variations people use, most of which are fine. But whatever way you write it, your provision should include these four concepts. One, what documents are included? Some drafters list exhibits and other documents. Often this isn't needed because the defined term, capital A agreement, already includes those things. Two, does it say entire agreement? or something similar. I prefer the entire agreement phrase, but others like to use complete, exclusive, and final combinations. I'm not particular about the words as long as the concept is clear. Three, what in the documents is superseding something else? I tend to use concerning its subject matter. Others like the matters included in this agreement. There's a slightly nuanced difference, but I don't see it as a big deal in run-of-the-mill contracts. You may want to think it through for a strategic or bet-the-company deal. Four, what is being superseded by the documents? We describe the timing, such as prior and contemporaneous, the types, agreements, understanding, and so forth, the nature, oral and written, and the subject matter. Contract tip, equitable remedies provisions. Equitable remedies are judicial orders that require someone to do something, specific performance, or not to do something, an injunction. 
The equitable remedies provision says the parties are entitled to or may seek equitable remedies if there is a breach for which money damages are inadequate or unavailable. One quirk of these provisions is that they do not bind the courts. Judges decide whether to grant equitable relief and may do so no matter what the provision says. You may think, then why do we even bother to include them? Well, we include them because judges sometimes do consider whether the parties intended to have equitable relief as a remedy. These judges are more likely to grant that relief if the provision is specific about that intent and how it applies. The most common issue negotiated is whether to use the more robust is entitled to equitable relief or just entitled to seek equitable relief. Some feel strongly that the second is correct. After all, the relief is at the judge's discretion, not the party's. But others feel strongly that the first use is proper and that adding to seek dilutes the strength of the provision. 